the minutiae of their demonic behavior from the highest of the fallen Elohim down to the lowliest of the demons, the unclean disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. There is a discernible culture which helps us to understand the way the demons not only operated, how they operated in the prehistoric and the, the ancient world, but also in the modern world too. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. Today, let us embark on a journey into the intriguing realm of witchcraft and sorcery, where the mystical and the misunderstood converge. Picture, if you will, a force so ancient and potent that it has woven its way through history, leaving a trail of enigmatic practices across diverse cultures. And while we call those forces demons, Many do not share the same definition of the word demon. Some find them to be helper spirits or energies of the universe. However, for the purpose of my show, we like to use the word sinister forces to speak of the unclean spirits of the Nephilim, those who are offspring of the Watcher Angels and human women. This term also includes the Fallen Angels, and any of the host of spirit beings that might be in service obedience to the gates of hell. We are going to be talking about where the dark and evil witchcraft come from. We will speak about the reality of a sort of tutelage between the forces of darkness, the unsuspecting human. Later in the show, I will be bringing in my guest to help shed some light on these sinister forces. Reality is that when we are being drawn down a dark path, we can experience things that seem like lights. Just like the will-o'-wisp, we can be led deeper into the swamps or maybe to our doom. And when we begin to start delving into the annals of history, we unearth instances where witchcraft and using it Many became a victim of the sinister misunderstanding and manipulation therein. Here lies the crux of our exploration. These sinister forces that are the very essence of the power associated with primal witchcraft or ancient sorcery. We've spoken before about the sinister forces and what they are. They are shadows, elusive, pervasive with the ability to influence, inspire, exploit, 
the energies entwined with the practice of magic and the occult. As we navigate the blurred lines of cultures, we find echoes of their presence. Whispers of malevolent intent that have shaped the narrative of witchcraft and sorcery throughout the ages. The heart of our discussion lies in the hijacking and warping of this ancient power. Imagine, if you will, the original intent of the human will, a force aligned with the rhythms of nature, the mysteries of the Trinity, the exploration of existence. Now then, consider the distortion of this power over time, where the pursuit of dominance and control of the unclean spirits led to dark, unintended consequences. The once harmonious dance with the supernatural in the Garden of Eden has taken a perilous turn, and today we find ourselves at the precipice of a profound revelation. Enter the concept of reversed power, a twisted reflection of the energies harnessed in witchcraft. This reversal carries with it a profound power that threatens the very fabric of the human soul. And as we look back, we will encounter tales of civilizations undone, and hear of individuals consumed by a force turned against them. The psychological and spiritual impact of such manipulation is staggering. You can hear about these stories drawn from the annals and pages of history of how people were so kind, so gentle, so nurturing and loving, stumbled into something dark, and over time they had become obsessed with the power, with capabilities, with the illusion that they could manipulate and become their own god. Yet, amid the shadows, there is a glimmer of hope, a beacon guiding us through the labyrinth of manipulation. How can those find themselves in the grip of some ill intent, steel themselves against the hostilities of these sinister forces? The answer lies in awareness and prayer. We must navigate these dangerous waters with a discerning eye, a lantern built upon being mindful of the ethical considerations that tether us to the Holy Spirit. If we reflect on the odyssey we have undertaken along the path of the historical tapestry of witchcraft by unraveling the threads of manipulation woven by the sinister forces, the message resounds in a cautionary tale of the potential destruction of the human soul inherent in witchcraft. And here I speak to differentiate the New Age versus the Old. New Age witchcraft represented by modern Wicca emerged in the mid-20th century. It emerged as a nature-based, eclectic spiritual practice, emphasizing personal growth and connection to nature. It involves rituals and magical ceremonies. Wicca was a word coined by Gerard Gardner in the 1900s. 
It is a subset of New Age witchcraft with a focus on deities like the god and goddess, and adherence to principles like the so-called Wiccan Reed, ancient sorcery. In contrast, refers to diverse magical practices in various ancient cultures, from Mesopotamian Egypt to Greece and Rome. Unlike the modern and eclectic nature of the New Age witchcraft, ancient sorcery is rooted in historical and cultural contexts. Practices varied widely, encompassing divination, healing, and ritualistic magic. Ancient sorcery lacks the standardized framework found in modern Wicca or the New Age movement, which reflects the diversity of beliefs and practices across the different historical periods and cultures. And, as we part ways, I leave you with a call to awareness and responsibility. Let the knowledge we have gained serve as a compass, guiding us through the labyrinthine mysteries of witchcraft May we, as seekers of truth, be stewards of ancient wisdom, ensuring its integrity and preserving the delicate balance between the mystical and the mindful. We'll work through these ideas of how it is that the sinister forces begin to influence the mind and just how old they really are. Welcome, listeners. I've got a wonderful intellectual guest on my show, a profound scholar, captivating storyteller. This man transcends the boundaries of knowledge, unearthing the treasures of history and mythology. Join us as we delve into the depths of wisdom with a mind that illuminates the extraordinary and transforms the ordinary into an awe-inspiring journey of discovery. Dr. Judd Burton. Thank you for the introduction. Glad you could come on the show and we can talk about some of the demonology experience that you've written about. Certainly. I want to talk about what they have done to people. Not merely just demonic possession, but I'm talking about how, how they operate and how they want to interact with the world. And you've written about some of this in Interview with the Giant. Could you speak on that for a minute? I suppose when it comes to human interaction and, and a, a human a, a covenant made with human in the broadest sense, a kind of witchcraft, um, there's a culture of wickedness in the pre-flood world that stems from our, our interaction with these fallen entities, these fallen Elohim, rebellious members that were once once members of the heavenly host. Uh, loyal to, to God, loyal to Yahweh. Um, 
so much of man's interaction with occult forces, with, with demonic forces, begins with that that phase of a rebellion. Of course, other scholars have talked about phases of, of that, that rebellion, that there, there are three. Um, the late Dr. Mike Heiser talked about the the initial one, uh, the, the rebellion in Genesis chapter 6, and then the Babel rebellion. And to one extent or another, the, the streams of influence and, and a culture, if we can quantify it as such, stem from those points of origin. And I, I, you alluded to I think a chapter in my book interview with the giant that I entitled Primal Witch. I called it that because it's really the mode of tutelage between the demonic and humans in terms of, of learning the mechanics of witchcraft stems from that interaction that, that Genesis 6 event with the watchers revealed uh, to humanity and we know that it was a, a, a mix again if we're to believe the commentary that the apocryphal the pseudepigraphal material uh, gives on on the Genesis text then what transpired was an exchange of, of a mix of occult knowledge and practical sciences and on the occult end of that that the origination of, of witchcraft uh I believe can to one extent or another be quantified um, but all of the the, the minutiae of their of, of demonic behavior from the highest of the fallen Elohim down to the lowliest of, of the demons the, the unclean disembodied spirits of the Nephilim <laughs> spanning the entire taxonomy there, there is a discernible culture which helps us to um, un- understand the way the demons not only operated demons and, and fallen angels, how they operated in the the prehistoric and the, the ancient world, but also in the modern world too. Right, and that's that's that was much much of the impetus for writing interview with the giant is because I wanted to apply these anthropological and cultural models. To the study of initially giants, the biblical giants, and then by proxy the demons, uh, and um, or, or the demonic realm in general, and the loyal angelic realm uh, to Yahweh as well, because I'd n- I'd never really seen it done. Okay, an interesting concept because if we take the word inspiration, or we look at it from the Latin inspire. Basically, it's this essence of inspiration. The Romans would have said it was a spirit that was breathing life into what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And it seems like... Yeah, the, the genius. Mm-hmm. We can't follow the same logic like Socrates, where he called this the, the daemon, because it doesn't seem to be or fit that description. Right. It seems to be wholeheartedly something other almost uncomprehensible by our own human cognition, but we see its effects, like you said, mm-hmm. in day-to-day life, uh, day-to-day, uh, you know, when people are practicing any kind of new age or even uh, occult things, because when you talk about this primal witch, 
we're really talking about some ancient, you know, Appalachia style witchcraft, really. Very much, yeah. Yeah, not so much, you know, some of the, you know, this isn't the- atheistic Satanism. This is completely a whole different type of ball game. Right, nor is it thaumaturgy. It's not the high magic, the ritual magic that's <laughs> been sort of caricatured in Hollywood. Right. Um, but it's as dangerous, if not more dangerous. This is the kind of, I hesitate to use the word organic. It's a more direct tutelage in many cases, and it's, it's, ju- it's equ- equally as dangerous. And it is an intellect. I mean, we are dealing with a superior. They've been at this for millennia. Mm-hmm. It seems like the the goal of these sinister. I call them sinister forces because it seems to be a whole lot more than just the bastard spirits of the Nephilim. We're we're dealing with yes inspirations, possibly from fallen angels themselves. Absolutely, yes. They're constantly trying to affect our, or affect our judgment mm-hmm. in order to ca- cause us to be ignorant of what they are. And you wrote really well in Interview with the Giant. And can you talk a little bit about the Nephilim, basically? Kind of give us a background on what leads us into the bastard spirit? Sure. The Well, the Nephilim are first referenced in, in Genesis chapter 6. And... This is a word that many Hebrew scholars will translate as translate as the fallen ones. The more accurate translation is giants, and we'll see why that's the case in just a moment. Um, and I don't want to presume too much of the audience, but I'm sure that a lot of your listeners, for one reason or another, are probably familiar with the Genesis six episode. You know where right. it talks about these. The sons of God, the Benach Elohim. Right. It must be angels and not as as later church thinkers like Julius Africanus and Augustine, who were both important theological figures in the church. Well, Augustine just left a belief system where they had angels in their worship. Well, and that's right. He was a Manichaean, and so he had been exposed to Certainly Enoch, and definitely the book of, a sort of Gnosticized version of the book of Giants. Right. And so he, he, you know, it's not surprising that he would have wanted to distance himself from that. But the Sethite view is it came to be known that the sons of God were the righteous offspring of Seth came to be the, the prevailing interpretation of that passage. But it's completely bereft of, of context and what we know about the linguistic nuances of not only the Hebrew, but also the later Septuagint, you know, which the, the Hellenized rabbis that translated that gave that proper Greek idiom <laughs> and they clarified it for us as giants. In fact, that's the word that they, they use the genitive uh, of gigas, gigantes. It's pretty clear that if we're going to rely on context and the, the older linguistic evidence we have uh, that we're dealing with giants. In, in other words, 
that passage in Genesis 6 talks about the mating uh, between these fallen sons of God and the daughters of men. It says that they went into the daughters of men, and that's just a transliterated euphemism for sexual intercourse. And so there's really not not even any vagary there as to what happened. So the product of, of this union was a being that had both angelic pedigree and human pedigree. And we get a sense that they play a role in the wickedness that ensues, uh, that their forebears, the watchers had begun. They themselves continued. And again, the nuanced, detailed commentary on the sort of thing comes from apocryphal literature, largely, which is important. I think it's important as commentary because, you know, a number of these works like Enoch and Jasher and Jubilees are actually referenced by Old Testament and New Testament writers. So although we don't equate them with the weight of canon, uh, because those inspired writers were led to reference those works, I think it behooves us to take a closer look at them, particularly in their value as commentary. Right. Uh, and so we get the details. You know, the semi-divine race, the Nephilim, who were wicked. They were so wicked that their parents were afraid of them. They turned on each other. They consumed uh, all of humanity's resources. They they drank the blood and ate the flesh of humans. Just all kinds of nastiness. Yeah. And take the human wickedness, take the angelic wickedness, take the giant wickedness, wrap all of that together, and God gets... He's taken all this into account as the perfect judge, and he hands down judgment. And... Part of the judgment on the Nephilim, these gigantic hominids, is that their spirit, their bodies would be destroyed during the course of the flood, the great deluge, uh, but their spirits would remain as unclean spirits. And of course, this is this is one of the most common terms in the New Testament that's used for demon uh, is unclean spirit. Um, and so it says that they will basically seek to indwell flesh they will they will be hungry and thirsty and never sated uh and so um by way of the commentary given from all of this really valuable apocryphal material we actually have the origins for unclean spirits for demonic spirits these sort of middle and, and lower ranking spirits in the demonic hierarchy and you brought up interesting word. You said like the Greek word is gigantus, giant. Mm-hmm. But I do believe I read that you wrote uh, the Gregory. Yes, the Gregory is another Hellenic term that's used to describe the watchering. I am familiar in a, with occult a, a philosophy with the word egregore being a group basically a spirit or an energy that's formed through the powers of group think mm-hmm. because it seems that the human is able to produce or maybe draw spiritual energy to ourselves through some kind of means and you had spoken in an interview about DMT 
Mm-hmm. Can we briefly cover our fascination with engagement of otherworldly entities through the means of psychedelic medicines? Yes, absolutely. And that's that, you know, that interaction with these, these spirits um, is often facilitated, although not universally, very often is facilitated by the use of uh, hallucinogens of one sort or another. And, and this is, it's very faddish now for modern Westerners to go to South America and do ayahuasca. But the fact remains is that there's a, there's a huge corpus of anthropological data going back to prehistory of humans using hallucinogens in all kinds of magical and religious workings. The interesting thing now is that because these experiences have come under the scrutiny of scholarship, I'm thinking especially of the work of uh, Dr. Rick Strassman, Mm -hmm. um, notably his book, The Spirit Molecule, where he examines this molecule, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, that actually our bodies make naturally. And I suspect that that's by design. You know, it's part of our, our neurotheology in a way. But there's a point um, that those amounts can become excessive. And in, in fact, in the case of, of these plants that have this, this DMT in it, you, your stomach naturally makes an enzyme that prohibits the absorption Right, DMT, and you have to actually take a another concoction that that inhibits that enzyme uh, for it to take place. But nonetheless, um, people throughout the ages have figured this out, and the, the various kinds of hallucinogens that have been used. Um, and I suspect that this goes back to what the Watchers were teaching. You know that. It's it's alluded to in Enoch that they were teaching. Um, well, this is pharmakia, wouldn't it be? It is, it is pharmakia at, at the at the root. It's it's the very meaning, the uh, the working of magic by way of drugs. Um, it could be one translation of the Greek word pharmakia, um, witchcraft, sorcery. Yeah, it's all tied together in the same the same idea. So that that is exactly what the Watchers. We're teaching, so this this is a, a very ancient, very prehistoric mode of interaction with these entities. And as I said, um, what's interesting about it now is that it, we do have a measure of quantification on it. And people that have gone into these DMT trances and DMT DMT workings reports report encountering very similar entities. Um, Sometimes they're indifferent. Sometimes they're downright menacing. Yeah, we get the clockwork gnomes. We get uh, the clowns. Mm-hmm. And I think somebody even reported seeing the common gray extraterrestrial from Hollywood. Yes, and I've also heard uh, reptilians have been experienced in some of these DMT. Interesting. Yeah. The fact that I mean, if we look at that through the lens of Christianity, look at it through the lens of the Bible, that sort of thing shouldn't surprise us because it's been around for a while. The demons have been around for a while. Fallen angels even longer. Uh-huh. 
it should wake us up to because we start to see you know professional articles, scholarly articles and, and books like Straussman's uh, The Spirit Molecule it should wake a few people up to the reality of what people have been reporting and I'm thinking ethnographically anthropologically what people have been reporting for literally millennia um, if you look at cases of werewolfism and and shape-shifting mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's in in france or germany or the american southwest uh or the australian outback you know a lot of a lot of the shape-shifting myths and legends and encounters that people have with them even the skinwalkers here in our own country they all involve at the use of some sort of, of hallucinogen or salve uh whether that's ghost weed or, or or datura or something of that that nature you're going to find this recurring in the literature in other words basically any kind of class of hallucinogen is being employed and we get these same kind of visions uh, similar to the kachinas of the what are the, the pueblo indians pueblo, yeah that's right mm-hmm. okay and so from demonic inspiration into the use of drugs through pharmacia, we also get the demonic influence to summon them up from the pits. And we know from one example in the Bible when we have Saul, I think it was, to a witch to summon up the spirit of Samuel. And it's really weird because you would think that she would summon up the demon that she was familiar with and yet she's like no we've got an Elohim here and we know that that word's only used to speak of godlike entities mm-hmm. what can we glean from this story about this witch of the uh, of Endor or the Ove well the this is one of those cases of fracturing of prohibitions from the, the Mosaic laws, the Levitical laws against the the law against necromancy, which is interesting that it's in there because it it puts forward that you shouldn't do this, and it's also possible. It implies can, it's possible. It implies that it's possible. That that's right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're, they're described as. The interesting thing about the use of Elohim here is that it, it it could potentially mean a a human spirit as well, um, because um, Elohim we find very often associated with with the angels, but in we're learning now that that taxonomy could potentially extend into the human dead and other disembodied spirits as well. But a god, yeah, you're right. You're, you're correct in your characterization, a godlike entity, some sort of other world entity. Not a living entity. We don't use the word Elohim to speak of the living, right? Yeah, not an entity that shares the same plane of existence that we do. That, that That's a good distinguishing marker. Because this is common with a demonic obsession, possession, influence uh, poltergeist that there's some kind of interaction from an entity that is not within our material realm 
Yes, and if you track the the oldest forms of religious and magical rites, they all have to do with the cult of the dead. And so the contact the contact of that realm for for some sort of secret knowledge or 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 insight into our own existence is also very very old and, and antique. In, in fact, you look at some of these sites like you mentioned. Um, go back to Tepe, but I'm thinking of other Natufian sites like Jericho and Tel Karamel. The, the evidence for the cult of the dead is all over the place. Yeah, we have cults of the skull across yes, the world. Exactly. Um, even right here in, in the Americas. Um, yes. All throughout the Americas. We just got through, got past the season of uh, the Day of the Dead and Halloween. Right. And yep. So many of those those periods of communication with the dead all within that August and November window. Um, but getting back to the, the source material here in, in Samuel, uh, another interesting word that occurs in there is, is the O, which again is one of those terms that we know that it's dealing with some sort of one of these spirits from the other place, from the netherworld. It's not, it doesn't share existence on our or plain. Sometimes it's translated as familiar spirit. Right. Um, it's it seems to be related to a a cluster of words in West Asian languages, notably um, the Hurrian word uh, "avi," uh, which was a a necromantic uh, a ritual necromantic pit. You said Abi? Yeah, the Abi. Wow. Because that sounds really close to the Absu. Yeah, well, that's the that's the other word that I was about to tie it into. Ah. Um, the Absu, which of course you know is the watery uh, underworld where the demoted god kings of the Mesopotamian pantheon dwelt. Uh-huh. Um, this is where where we get the word abyss from, but the the Hurrian Abi, uh, and there's certainly diffusive cultural influence between the Mesopotamian and the Hurrian world. Uh, to give people some reference, we're talking about northern Syria and south central Turkey in terms of the uh, the old Hurrian Empire. But it the the, the necromantic bit the Abi is meant to mimic that. It's meant to mimic the uh, the absu. Uh, it, it's meant to mimic the realm of the dead. It, it's meant to mimic uh, at least one chamber in the Hebrew conception. It's meant to mimic the, um, the realm of Sheol, where some of these Elohim dwell, uh, including the Rephaim. Um, and even Rephaim is related to the word used for these root these dead god kings, demoted god kings, the Raba in Akkadian and Sumerian and the Rapa in Ugaritic that the Phoenicians wrote in. <laughs> so all these concepts and words are, are tied together in the, the general sort of complex information management that went along with the mythology of the ancient Near East, or I should say the mythologies plural of the ancient Near East. They were all tied together uh, and that that includes that includes the religious thinking of the Hebrews. 
And then it wasn't too long after this interaction between King Saul and the prophet Samuel that we read about him wanting to throw, throwing a spear at David. Mm-hmm. That there's this relation between rebellion and witchcraft that mm-hmm. seems to be tied into scriptures. That's right, which is again is another uh, allusion back to the rebellion of the Watchers. Uh, it was as the sin of witchcraft because a bulk of what they taught humanity was witchcraft. So it's not merely a rebellion in the same sense that we would go, oh, this group of people is rebelling against a tyrant. It's this group of people are doing witchcraft. Right. It, it's not It's not like a political I mean, it is a political coup, but it, it encompasses so much more than just the, the theopolitics of the realm, mm-hmm. as Sharon Gilbert would say. Yeah. Um, it um, this the witchcraft is a, a a direct component, and if you look at the the antecedents in Genesis to what comes later in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where we get the fleshing out of the law, it only makes sense uh, that it's directly related to that it's alluding to the rebellion of the sons of God. And so it's this action of rebellion or rebelling against that we start seeing a fall towards the, the dark side to borrow George Lucas. And it leads to other people. There's other cases through time of individuals who seem to have engaged these spirits. There's a, a young man who changed his name to Pazuzu that I spoke about with Dr. Heather Lynn for a little while when they found his body in his cell because he was in solitary confinement they found him with bruises on his body that could not have been self-inflicted and then he had cut uh, an artery on his arm in a way that wouldn't have been would not have been self-inflicted mm-hmm. and he constantly was screaming about having to do a blood sacrifice for whatever entity it was he worshipped I mean he said he worshipped Pazuzu I mean he even ground his teeth into points did all sorts of things that were completely disgusting mm-hmm. and entirely in the same vein of these unclean spirits. And I find it kind of interesting because it leads into an idea where people establish a location, a loci, mm-hmm. a locus of power to draw these entities out, which is exactly what it seems this witch of Endor had, had stumbled upon. She had an area a pit where she could summon whatever entity it was that she spoke to. Mm-hmm. And this brings up the idea of sacred space. We typically think of a church as sacred space, but it seems like the sinister forces employ their own form, mimicking maybe the Edenic idea. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why we spoke about Goblaki Tepe. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. And we spoke about that one uh, in our own chat conversations through time, how it is so close to what the fallen ones might have thought was Eden. Mm -hmm. Is that a theory that's being bounced around? Certainly one that makes sense to me, um, just in terms of, of, you're right, sacred space, sacred geography is always 
you know, that's really the cosmic chessboard in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I think that that's pretty clearly explicated to us in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Psalm uh, 29, um, you know, where, you know, it talks about the gods of the nations, you know, and the, the apportionment that they have. So they literally have geographical domains. And of course, this is echoed by, um, you know, Paul when he's talking about it in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, so it's it's been a war of of cosmic geography to a, a great degree, and you're right. They, t- to my mind, there are a couple of ways this this can happen. There's al- there are already locations within their own domains that is hearkening back to the gods of the nations' distribution of territory, and then there are there are spaces. Um, sacred spaces and infernal spaces, if you will, um, that that can be made due to the enticement of, of demonic forces, and and those spaces are made are are made sacred, whether to God or whether to the demonic. They're made sacred by the the occupation and activity within those locations. So the ritual activity, in other words, the religious activity within, um, within those areas. Um, people, people can also be sacred or infernal geography because the, uh, the temple imagery that Jesus uses, um, when we, when we become a believer, when we when we accept the gospel, we accept Jesus. You know, we we become a temple. We become sacred space because God wills us. Which would then show, you know, if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means we could be a vessel for God. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the sinister forces could pour itself into an individual, making it a dark temple. That's right. If you will. And we typically call that demon possession. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, that is, that's exactly right. And that, that, that characterizes everything that the demonic does. It's a, it's a shadowy reflection, a counterfeit of what God intends. Always an opposite. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was thinking of a passage in Montague Summers' um, Vampire as Kith and Ken, where he says that right. the vampire is a shadowy reflection of what Christ intends. Um, and by, by extension, I think that does apply, I think, to the demonic as well. Which is an interesting correlation because a vampire, according to modern movies, is they can't be seen in a mirror. Right, exactly. No reflection. Well, I mean, that's that's part of the challenge uh, of of Christians, at least on, I think, on not only just the, the sort of deliverance slash exorcistic front but also the apologetic front is is stripping so many of these entities that have been basically caricatured by popular literature and cinema um you know we have to strip away the the literary and cinematic veneer of the vampire or the werewolf the the ghoul or the revenant or whatever whatever the preternatural creature might be to reveal the demonic right 
the the movie The Last Voyage of the Demeter did a really mm-hmm. good job of showing the Nosferatu. Oh my, yes, I was really impressed with the movie. Yeah, they did a good job showing basically it de-romanticized the vampire mm-hmm. and made it into the monster it it is and mm-hmm. it did a really good job with that. Fantastic interview, Dr. Judd. Can you give us some... You're doing a a school. You've got classes. Can you talk about that for a bit? Certainly. Um, Through uh, the Institute of Biblical Anthropology, I have six programs of study. And uh, there are actually a few of them that deal deal directly with the topic tonight. I, I do teach a biblical demonology program. Uh, the preternatural morphology program covers the kind of folkloric manifestations of the demonic, and the world mythology class, or rather, program would be uh, would also be pertinent as well. And people can sign up for a, a, a year membership, or they can pay month by month um, to get access to the course material. And that'll give them access to basically any course they want. Yes. At any given time. Right, exactly. It's best to designate a a program of study, especially if you want the certification. But, um, you know, this is the platform itself is going to be a snowball because there are going to be video lectures. Eventually, there's going to be more interactive stuff. So it's just it's going to be this thing that I throw more and more stuff at. Um, And uh, it, it. It'll be a lot of fun. We just did our first live stream this past month. Yes. Um, which you were part of. I, I know yeah, I was. Yep. It was a lot of fun. Uh, looking forward to the next one. And I, I may do some um, some special lectures in, in that same venue. But if people are interested, they can, all, they can also study biblical anthropology, the ancient Near East, and Mediterranean civilization as well. And then you got a hand. We, we mentioned a couple of your books during the inter- interview with the giant. We talked about your werewolves book and your vampires book. And you've got a bunch of other things that you've edited. Yes. Uh, it's a collection that I'm, I'm looking to expand, especially this next year. Um, it, it, if I use a book in a class or I, I uh, you know, I, I feel like it's a, 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 a volume that, that bears circulation. Um, I'll edit one and annotate it. Uh, so for instance, uh, I've got William Godwin's Lives of the Necromancers as part of the curriculum in preternatural morphology. Um, and you mentioned Montague Summers's Werewolf book. Uh, well, I mean that that is Sabina Baring Gold's okay. book of the werewolves. Um, Summers did write a book on on werewolves, which is also a very good one. Um, but my my project in January is to do an annotated version of uh, Summers's The Vampire is Kith and Ken, which to my mind is still one of the, the definitive books on the subject. Yeah, kind of like uh, his Malleus Maleficorum. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, Summers was a consummate scholar in addition yes, to the clergy. Those books are worth it, not just for the content, but also for the bibliographical material, because it's they're just treasures that really are. 
Well, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. This is a free podcast based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, subscribing to this channel, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend on your social media accounts. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light.